almost. <laughs> you can keep talking. It's good. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, you can. Uh, welcome, everyone, uh, and uh, thanks to the uh, dean's art of uh, dean's office of arts and humanities. Although being a dean is an art, uh, I'm really excited to uh, to introduce our introducers. There's a real problem going on. Wow. I think I'm from another planet. Hold on. <laughs> Maybe you are. The radioactivity of the I don't know what's going on. So if that starts to happen, where do we go? Uh, yeah. Another building. Yeah. Yeah. There's an aura around me. I guess it was in my jacket. Uh, anyways, um, we have we have two introducers for one reader. Uh, one of our readers was not able uh, to to make it today uh, due to uh, extremely messed up circumstances, not his not of his doing. Um, so we have uh, one reader who's also going to show us some things today. Uh, and so um, Omar Pimienta and Jose Villarón are going to going to introduce. Uh, please approach, and we'll try to try to work this thing so it works. Okay. Thanks. Do we even need the microphone? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> well, there's not. Okay. <laughs> the rumble is nice. There's no rumble, so I yeah, not with me. So unfortunately, Rodrigo Chazun won't be able to join us tonight which would have perhaps made our duet thing a little less ridiculous. <laughs> and although we're certainly sad for his absence and wish he was here, we're also very grateful to have Rodrigo Fuentes, who's going to share some of his work with us. Uh, but first, we figured it would be best to tell you a little bit about Rodrigo Fuentes. As me. Rodrigo Fuentes, escritor, traductor, nacido en Costa Rica en 1984. Aunque la mayoría de su familia es de Guatemala, sí. eh, he received his BA in economics from the University of Pennsylvania and his PhD in Spanish from Cornell University. Uh, ganó el concurso nacional de ensayo convocado por el diario Prensa Libre de Guatemala en el 2001 y el premio de cuento de, en los Juegos Florales Hispanoamericanos de Quetzalcanango 2008. Actualmente está trabajando en su primer libro de cuentos. Ha publicado cuentos en distintas antologías, incluyendo Asamblea Portátil, Muestrario de Narradores Iberoamericanos, Perú del 2009, Solo Cuento 3, México 2011, y Ni Hermosa Ni Maldita, Guatemala 2012. And of course, he's co-founder and editor of Sueta, a contemporary Latin American art and literature magazine, and of the digital publisher Traviesa. Citando a Cristina Rivera Garza, que muchos de ustedes van a conocer. Habremos de enfrentarnos a una verdad pequeña pero contundente. Una buena parte de lo que se da en llamar literatura latinoamericana se produce desde hace tiempo en Estados Unidos, con frecuencia en español y a veces en inglés. The birth of Traviesa perhaps can be traced to this small truth in Latin American literature, and more specifically to a writer's workshop where Rodrigo Hasbun and Rodrigo Fuentes met and started talking about the dearth of contemporary Spanish language fiction available in the United States. 
and maybe disillusioned by what they came up with, they figured to do something in order to try and fill that void. At first, it seems the intent or purpose of Traviesa was to create digital ontologies whose revenue would be redistributed among the participants. But then they figured it would be even more interesting if those ontologies were actually curated by guest writers and that it would be a great idea to translate them into English to reach a, a larger audience. 80% de las ganancias, lo cual nos parece muy revelante hasta matar, más o menos, van a los involucrados, o sea, los traductores, los editores, los escritores, los antologadores, y son estos mismos escritores y antologadores los que generan una estructura de enlaces covalentes que unen distintos átomos literarios, rompiendo con una estructura piramidal de publicación. O en palabras de los mismos creadores, traviesa, busca un acercamiento a la literatura contemporánea desde un punto de partida distinto al que hemos visto en otras publicaciones. Nos interesa ver qué viene antes y qué viene después de la ficción por medio de secciones que indagan en la intimidad y en las rutinas de distintos escritores. Libera Garza de nuevo. Más que globalizados, estamos ante el caso de escritores planetarios, el término se espía, que desde y con sus comunidades tanto materiales como digitales, y entre lenguas maternas y madrastras, se encargan de encarnar al escritor del aquí y del ahora. Please, let us give a warm welcome to Rodrigo Fuentes. Bueno, gracias Omar y José por la introducción calurosa, and thank you Ben and Cristina for having me here, and uh, thank you all for being here as well. Um, so, Rodrigo Hasbun is uh, uh, regrettably not with us right now, but uh, he sends his regards. He'll be back at some point, I'm sure. Um, basically, what I'm going to do is uh, read a story, read a short story to start. Um, and, uh, and then after that, I'm just going to go a little bit into this project that we started with Rodrigo a couple of years ago. Uh, just tell you a little bit what our intentions were when we began it, where it's going. Um, show, give you a little guided tour through the sections that we have in the both the publication and talk to you about the digital publisher. That's kind of those are the kind of the two sections for the project: the online magazine and then the digital publisher of contemporary Latin American fiction. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for being here, and uh, I'm going to read a story. It's called uh, Los Temblores. Uh, um, of course, I'll, I'll read it in English. Uh, tremors. One. Mati's tremors kicked in the moment we raised our glasses. Happy birthday, we sat around the table, and his left eye started twitching, then blinking furiously, his mouth stretched to the side as if caught by an invisible fish hook. His body, his body shuddered, and so did the table, and we kept our silence as the silverware clattered against the cream-colored china. It had been five years since I'd seen him last, and I was surprised to find my mother's description so accurate. He's all bones, she'd said as we were driving to my aunt and uncle's house. Huge black bags under his eyes. That boy must never sleep. She'd run into Mati some months before, in the parking lot of the supermarket in Zone 9, he was squatting against a concrete wall with plastic bags around his feet, tied up at his ankles. He hadn't recognized her. 
It must be very hard for your Antonita, my mother said as we parked in front of the house. Same for Uncle Moy, she added. Must be hard for him to see his son this way, to know his life to slip away like that. We got out of the car and my mother looked up at the clean white facade of the one-story house. As we walked to the front door, she put her hand on my shoulder and turned to me before knocking. We must have a little compassion, she said. Not too much compassion, but just a little. Things had changed since Mati left, and the house had changed too. The days of screaming and crying and phone calls to the cops were over now. Door handles had been replaced, and anyone could lock themselves in the bathroom if they wanted to. Uncle Moy and Aunt Nita had bought new versions of the things that Mati had once stolen. The microwave, the TV, the silverware laid neatly on the table that very evening. Two. Mati's tremors continued after the toast, and we all pretended nothing had happened. Uncle Moy just stared into his wine glass, eyes fixed on the translucent red, and Aunt Nita started tossing the salad in the bowl somewhat frantically, mixing in that sharp vinaigrette that used to make him cringe. But Mati had settled down now, though his eyelid twitched and the slight spasm made his face shudder every so often. So what's new with the flaco, he asked, turning to me. Not much, I said, avoiding his eyes, just finishing up with high school. Two more months. He seemed to think about that, but it was hard to know what went on behind his twitching face. I'm glad, Flaco. Well done, he said at last. Thanks, Mati. Mati's working now, Antonita announced proudly to the table. My mother sat up, immediately interested. Are you now, Mati? What are you working on? What are you working on? I'm working at a body shop, Via, helping the mechanics down there. That's great, Mati. Little by little, my mother said. That's also where he sleeps, said Uncle Moy. We all fell silent, and Mati kept on eating, his face close to the plate. He works right where he sleeps, Uncle Moy insisted, right at the back of the body shop. He looked around the table, then put down his fork. But it's good, he said finally. Work is work, right? My mother nodded, and Mati raised his glass high. To work, he said, which is work. We raised our own glasses, not too sure of ourselves. Uncle Moy held his lightly while staring at Mati, and then took a sip of his wine. Well, well, said Aunt Nita. We're here to celebrate, right, Mati? Right, Mom, Mati answered, and I think his smile sat in the saw. Chicken and mushroom soup sauce had always been Mati's favorite dish, and now he seemed especially pleased when Aunt Nita brought it to the table. We concentrated on her food until my mother started talking about the country's situation, that vague, nebulous subject, a subject prone to anecdotes and sighs. The country's situation belonged to a violent present and foreshadowed a murky, likely violent future, but at least the future was still unscarred. Where I live, the situation is not all that bad, Mati stated as he raised his fork to his mouth. He chewed heartily and then emptied his glass of water. Where I live, kids play on the streets. They even have pickup soccer during the day, right in front of the body shop. Oh my, said my mother, isn't that dangerous? Mati blinked a couple of times. Not at all, he answered cheerfully. Women walk down the street with their bags right out in the open. And the corner drugstore puts out these great big speakers right on the curb. So every day it's one big party. Uncle Moy stared at him, and no one said a thing. Merengue, salsa, reggaeton, just one big party, Mati said. There's this one skinny boy, he continued. Just like your son, Tia, he said, pointing at me with his fork. You should see him dance every day on the street, just dancing away. What a gift to see you dance like that, he said, looking at me with a twitching half-smile. 
Uncle Moy pushed his chair back and muttered something, but no one made any effort to figure out what it was. Everyone wants coffee, right? Anita asked perkily, then got up and walked straight to the kitchen. Hey, three. Happy 25th, Anita said as she walked out of the kitchen toward Mati, holding two boxes wrapped in gold paper and topped with blue bows. Mati smiled sheepishly as he received the first gift. We all waited while he unwrapped it, carefully placing the bow next to his plate. Thank you, he said, looking into the open box. Thank you so much. He measured the jacket against his shoulders and got up to try it on, adjusting the sleeves to the length of his arms. Thanks, Mom, he said, taking off the jacket and folding it neatly back into the box. He walked over to Anita and hugged her. She was still standing and her thin arms went around Mati's back as she whispered something in his ear. We all waited as Uncle Moy got up with some effort and pushed the second gift closer to his son. There's one more thing, he said. The son lifted the package with both hands and looked around the room, surprised at the weight of the box, a slight tremor running through his body. My mother reached over to hand him one of the kitchen knives, and he went on cutting the tape with a shaky hand and ripping off the golden paper. The metal box was red and had an aluminum clasp. Uncle Moy saw his son hesitate and came close to show him how to unfasten it. It's to help you at the shop, Uncle Moy said. It's good, they're good quality. From my chair, I was able to see some of the tools, a hammer, screwdrivers, different kinds of wrenches. Thanks, Dad, Mati said. Uncle Moy lowered his eyes, nodded. They're good tools, he said. You'll put them to good use. I will, Dad. Four. My mother and Nita washed the dishes while I dried them with a worn out rag. Through the kitchen window, we could see Mati and Uncle Moy standing beside each other out in the garden, smoking a cigarette on the lawn. They had their backs to us, and I noticed their resemblance. A heavy way of leaning slightly forward as if resigned to bear the silence that had been weighing down on them for years. I fixed the room for you two upstairs, Anita said. Oh, you did, my mom asked, scrubbing away. These are not ours to be out on the street, Anita sighed. My mom nodded as she put the salad bowl under running water. Uncle Moy and Mati walked into the kitchen, the two of them stopping uneasily by the door. I should be taking you back, Uncle Moy said out loud. Anita turned off the tab and stared out the window, looking at the place where her husband and son had just been. I'll say my goodbyes then, Mati said. He came close to kiss my mother on the cheek and moved toward Anita, hugging her from the side. But she just stayed there, one hand on his shoulder, as she looked out into the garden. Isn't it too late to be driving, she finally asked, turning to look at Uncle Moy. There was a desperate glint in her eye. But Uncle Moy didn't respond, just leaned over to me. Fleco, will you come with us? I don't like being out there on my own this late. I nodded, and the three of us walked out of the house in a perfect single file line. Five. I didn't know the neighborhood well, but I knew what I knew well. Oh, sorry. I didn't know the neighborhood well, but I knew enough to avoid the terminal at night. We turned left on a narrow street and slowly moved through the dark, driving across the old train tracks. This way, son. Over there, Mati said from the front seat. We circled around the large warehouse which had once housed the terminal terminal. The wind kept lifting up the remnants of market day. Newspapers and plastic bags and little funnel clouds of dust that swirled close to the ground and died away. 
Take a left up here, Matty said. Then it's half a block. Small cement buildings stood shoulder to shoulder, their tin roofs jutting onto the street. A man covered in a dark gray rag laid huddled against one of the walls, eating something from his hands. Down the street, a pack of dogs scuttled close to each other, wary as our headlights shone down on their jagged bodies. There were no other cars, and Uncle Moy parked halfway down the street, with the car's lights illuminating the black metal door Matty had pointed at. Next to it, a big dark gate was fastened shut by several chains and a heavy-looking lock. Okay, son, he said. Can you hold on to my stuff while I open up? Uncle Moy turned over his shoulder and looked at me. Sure, son, we'll wait for you here. Matthew climbed out of the car and walked toward the gray structure, his thin body casting a large shadow, which grew smaller as he approached the door. He pulled some keys out of his pocket and brought a shaky hand to the keyhole. I couldn't see what he was doing, but it was taking him a while, his arm trembling as he worked the key. A minute went by and Uncle Moy flashed his high beams twice. What's going on, he called through the open window. Matty walked back to the car, hands in his pockets. Someone messed with the keyhole, he said. What do you mean? The key won't work. Uncle Moy shook his head and looked at the black door. Sometimes they do that, Matty said. Some assholes around here, they mess with the keyholes. I see. Matty raised his shoulders, rubbing his hands in the cold. What if we go that back, Dad? I don't want to spend the night out here. Uncle Moy inhaled deeply, twice, then unbuckled the seatbelt. Let's see, he said. He leaned back over his seat and asked me to hand him the toolbox. And the jacket too, he said. When he came out of the car, he handed the jacket to Matty, then kept on walking straight to the door, the big red toolbox in his hand. From the back seat, I could see the rough cement of the building, its raw porous facade illuminated by the headlights. Uncle Moy put the toolbox on the floor and went down on one knee to pick something out. Matty stood next to him, hugging himself in his knee jacket. He waited while Uncle Moy got up, screwdriver in hand, then leaned in with his father to examine the keyhole more closely. Uncle Moy started working it, picking it at it again and again, then jamming it harder, moving back, looking at it from a different angle. They shared a word or two, and now he tried to jam the door open, sticking the screwdriver against the concrete frame, leveraging it with all his weight. But it didn't give. He stopped after a while, dried the sweat on his brow with the back of his hand. They spoke again, Mati and him, and now they both leaned their bodies forward, hard against the door. They pushed and pushed while Uncle Moy struggled with the screwdriver, and I could see them clearly now, shoulder to shoulder. Bodies bent against the metal, knees bent and shaking too. They kept at it, not letting up one bit, hoping, perhaps knowing, that it was all just a matter of time. They pushed, and then they kept on pushing. They weren't going to stop. Thank you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, okay. Um, Thanks for listening. I guess now I'm just going to talk to you a bit about this project. Um, it's, uh, well, as Omar or Jose mentioned, it's something that we started with Rodrigo Hasbun about two years ago, two and a half years ago. We started talking about the dearth of uh, Latin American literature and translation, but also about uh, some other issues that were bothering us a little bit about how the 
publishing industry work for texts for literature and translation, but also for literature in Spanish uh, across the Spanish-speaking world. Um, so basically, the project has two sides to it. On one hand, on one hand, we have the uh, online magazine, you could say, where we have different sections. Uh, I'll give you a little tour of that like soon, but different sections that uh, approach contemporary fiction in Spanish uh, through different means. We have uh, Skype interviews with authors. We have Day in the Life section. We have uh, email exchanges between authors from different countries. We try to bring different authors from all over Latin America, Spain, or other speaking, uh, Spanish-speaking areas. Uh, and the other side of the project is a digital publisher. And basically, these are anthologies that are curated by a guest writer who picks a theme, uh, who pick a theme of their choosing, and based on that theme, choose four stories from Latin American or Spanish writers uh, from different countries. And based on that theme, write a prologue. And then both the anthologies and the <coughs> website is found in Spanish and in translation in its entirety, in English translation. Um, so, well, basically, traviesa, eh, traviesa in Spanish means naughty, uh, somewhat playful, but also it means cutting across something. Traviesa has this connotation of atravesar, or uh, a campo traviesa, which means cutting across. And that was one of the ideas or main incentives that we had when we started this project, just uh, on one hand, cutting across borders in Latin American countries because we felt that the literature produced in these countries was very insular in a way or kept itself within those countries and there wasn't, despite the fact that there were great authors in the region, same in Spain, there wasn't too much dialogue across borders. So our idea was to kind of uh, promote that dialogue, those conversations, those confrontations as well, and just see what would happen with that. Uh, secondly, of course, there's the idea of cutting across languages, uh, producing a these anthologies, both in Spanish and English, and same with the website. There's going to be some Italian uh, versions of the anthologies as well. So the idea is to keep growing and offer this work to as a, a wide audience as possible. Um, and finally, there was this kind of playful idea, uh, I think Wilmar mentioned it, of a kind of a answering a bit to this a publishing industry that is mostly based in Spain with some some presence as well in um, Argentina or Mexico, but it is a industry which has some conditions for the writers and for the distribution of this, these texts that we didn't really agree with or thought were conducive to uh, kind of productive circulation and for the benefit of the readers and writers as well. So some of those conditions, for example, were like a terrible royalty system for whatever got sold, uh, authors receive 10, 15% at best, for instance, out of the sales of each book after, uh, well, it's kind of a messy system. And additionally, there was like very poor circulation of these texts, even when writers did get to publish in Spain, their books, whether, for example, Latin American writers, their books wouldn't circulate in Latin America. Uh, some of these publishing industry, uh, companies would hold worldwide rights for the books, but would only distribute 500 books in Spain and maybe in Mexico something. And then the writers wouldn't be able to distribute those books elsewhere because they didn't hold the rights to them. Uh, and then a third condition was the time with which, um, the, the time of the copyrights uh, for these uh, publishing companies. So they held on, or they will hold on to five or six years, uh, to those copyrights for five or six years 
and sometimes they'll limit the way in which these authors can use these texts during those five years. So basically, uh, we decided to publish these anthologies, dedicate 100% of the royalties. That was a kind of later change that came about, but 100% uh, yeah, uh, to the authors, translators, and curators involved. Uh, also to only hold on to those rights, exclusive digital rights only, not print rights, but only digital rights for a year and a half. So if these stories get published in print, that's great. That's the idea, to have them circulate as much as possible and have as many people read them. Um, so anyway, so that, those were kind of, that was kind of the starting point of the incentives driving us with this, with this project. Um, so maybe I'll give you guys a little short tour of the website itself, what, what it is that we're like aiming to do, and then just a little bit more about the particular anthologies we've published so far. So on one hand, well, Traviesa, one of the ideas is to bring uh, the readers closer to the authors, to the authors they like, and to allow the authors also to bring a more like intimate, personal side of their literary production about how they live, how they work, what comes before the books, what comes after the books that they publish, and bring that to um, into view a little bit, to show a little bit more about the process itself, the writing process, et cetera. So for example, we have these Skype interviews. Obviously, all this is possible thanks to new technologies. It would never have been possible even 10, 50 years ago. So that's one of the kind of conditions of possibility that we had. Um, so here we have, for example, Martin Caparros. Uh, we have these other authors that we published. Uh, um, yeah, Horacio Castellanos Moya, who's actually also writing. He's in Iowa, he's in the US. Some of these are, some of them aren't. Uh, Samantha Shrelly, Daniel Larcón, who's in California. Some, some of you might like his work. But the idea was to interview these writers about everything that came out before the publication of their first book. There's, some of these authors have gone through a bunch of interviews, and uh, you know, there's a lot known about them. But we wanted to see how they kind of became readers first, how they became writers. Uh, Whatever that means, you know, they all have their different ways of approaching this this issue. But uh, also, kind of a, their sentimental literary education, and also their like their kind of literary education beyond literature itself. So even you know, music, uh, film, whatever it is, traveling, whatever it is that drew them to choose these paths. Uh, so that was what really what interested us in these in these. Uh, Interview. So this is one of the one of the sections. Another section are these email exchanges or um, Facebook messaging uh, exchanges between different authors. Um, actually, well, yeah, I should start putting this. In. Um, so this is the latest the latest uh, exchange that we have. It's Mexican writer Emiliano Monge and Colombian writer Juan Sebastián Cárdenas. And for example, in this exchange. Uh, well, they talk about a bunch of things, but uh, what was interesting, particularly interesting, is that they use the slang of their particular countries uh, very effectively and in a very funny way, uh, really kind of exploiting the, the possibilities of their languages. So it, like, each exchange allows different writers to do whatever it is that they want with their language and to transmit their ideas and to have a little ping pong or back and forth with other writers in the region as well. Um, so here, for example, one of the things that we're also trying to do is kind of involve uh, Latin American writers with uh, American uh, literature tradition or North American liter uh, literary tradition and also with Latino writers as well. So for example, here they talk a lot about Juno Diaz, a kind of very uh, unexpected, a very critical view of Juno Diaz about the character, about his writing as well. 
uh, and interesting as well. And one of the things that we wanted was to kind of confront these different traditions, see what came out of it. And so you can find it all here. Um, other, it's, it's, a, it's a long translation to <laughs> Um, for example, we have Ignacio Echeverria and Damian Tabarowski. That was a much more uh, kind of academic exchange. Both of these are critics. Uh, Ignacio Echeverria actually has a little cameo in Savage Detectives and Roberto Bolaño's novel. Um, and they talk a little bit about the publishing industry, about uh, politics of translation, things like that. It's much more academic. But then, for example, then uh, Lina Meruane and your very own Cristina, uh, they had they had a blast, obviously, with this correspondence, uh, and um, they talked about different. They, they each each set of writers kind of ch chooses a different approach to talk. This was much more like intimate, somewhat poetic as well. They talked about the effects of the internet, of the English language, and their own writing. Um, so so you know that's the idea to have uh, kind of. Uh, use this as a stepping stone or a trampoline for the writers to like go into whatever it is that drives there. Uh, and finally, let's say one more, just to give you one more section, like kind of a recent one. This is Me uh, Acuerdo, I Remember, which is based on the Joe Brainard, I Remember, um, little kind of poetic, very poetic little fragments of Joe Brainard's memory that was later used by, by Perec as well, uh, kind of imitated this. It's almost like a little subgenre, and so we asked writers to to write a couple of these macuerdos, so these I remember fragments, and share them. And so, example, for example, we have Margot Glantz, who has had a long life and a long literary trajectory, and she obviously has a lot to remember. We also have, for example, Sebastián Antesana, who's who's who conducts some of our interviews on Skype as well, Bolivian, and here he is. Uh, you know, it, it it's kind of a it allows for a very kind of funny. Remembrance and a lot, a very funny kind of a visual little bursts from from all these writers. So that would be something um, to point out. And so anyway, I won't I won't go into all the oops, I won't go into all the all the sections that we've had. But for example, you can go into the archive and you can see these interviews we had a day in the life section where we asked three different authors, three authors from three different countries to tell us about one day in their life to see what connections or a lack of connections there were in like in the particular places they were writing from as well. That's something that really interested us, like how that defines their, their fiction in a, in a time where like place is sometimes considered this ethereal thing. We really wanted to see how grounding it uh, through these mechanisms would, would allow for interesting text. Um, uh, so yeah, so you can check all this on the on the website itself. And finally, we have the anthologies. So far, we published four anthologies. Um, Trucho, or actually, I should. Uh, this is all in translation as well. Uh, Federico Falco published an anthology on the knockoff. Uh, basically, I mean, you have to read the the little prologue for it, but it's very particular themes that really interest these writers for whatever reason. It's the idea is to make the anthologies as personal as possible, but also with very interesting stories because they choose their favorite four stories and these subjects that really drive them. So Federico Falco had the knockoff, Liliana Colancy, Bolivian writer, published on Messianic Narratives from Messiah. <coughs> Yuri Herrera published an you know, anthology on bad luck, included um, and then Bettina Gonzalez, and we have more anthologies coming up 
Um, actually, next week, uh, we have an anthology on fantasy writing coming out. Um, and yeah, and that would be it. Um, I hope you guys can go into it, take a look. There are some like, really great texts, some interesting ones, some really funny ones as well. The, and it gives you a good idea of kind of what's going on in Latin America and Spain today and some of the struggles and interests of these writers, what they're, what they're talking about and what they're writing about and how they're living as well. So thanks for your attention. I wonder if uh, the audience might have some questions for you about this really interesting project. Yeah, it's more some. I mean, some of the. It's really. It depends on the curator a lot of times. But uh, sometimes they commission the story because they value the work of a particular colleague, let's say, and they know that they could write a good story on that subject. Some of these stories they've encountered in anthologies or in books of short stories, for instance. Um, so it's kind of from a mix of sources, and the idea is that the curators being kind of in this network of writers and reading a lot of like Latin America or Spanish writers really know what's going on in the field and have kind of a wide, uh, wide knowledge of, of the production, of the literary production, so they can pick and choose whatever really works well with their anthology. So sometimes they, yeah, it's like guest writers, sometimes they just, you know, whatever it is that they really <coughs> like before. Um, well, <laughs> well. First of all, we actually this this wouldn't be possible without some like great translators who are kind of translators are all, never get the credit they should get for starters. I feel like they do incredible work and they write new texts. You know, it is a it is a translation and there are all these uh, they want to transmit some kind of original meaning, but even that is a little is a little hard to do or a little problematic. So. There are like great writers, the translators that, that work in the anthologies. And there is, we have an editor of translations as well, Kate Newman, who works with these translators to make sure that some of this original intent and some of, and the writing is great as well. So, um, I mean, that's, that's the, you know, kind of all bets are off in the translation, right? It really comes down to the style of the translator and, and whatnot. Uh, we do our best to keep it as faithful to the original, but then again, translation is an unfaithful practice, right? So. <laughs> I'm curious. This is a, I, I would say it's a fairly groundbreaking project. So when you and Rodrigo started on, on this project, did you think that you were perhaps, I wouldn't want to say success, but like reach a level where you can actually be like publishing anthologies? And did you think that it would be, I don't think it's been easy, but did you think that you would reach a certain level of success? Or were you actually thinking this might not work at all? It, well, it started as a very little, very little, thing in the sense that, first of all, it was just anthologies that we wanted to publish. And wanted, our main concern was that there were great stories that we had encountered here or there. Uh, Rodrigo, through his, you know, through his, his network of people he interacted with, and same, way, same with me with uh, Swift, with the publication, and had read a bunch of great, great stories. But then we realized they weren't really available. 
so the main concern was how do we make this great work available to as a wide audience as possible. So that was a fairly, well, somewhat modest endeavor. It got, it got very hard and very big very quickly. And then when we decided to have this kind of literary magazine to go along with it and to establish a kind of dialogue between the anthologies and the, and the, and the magazine itself, and it started growing, but we never expected it to like, turn into what it has now, for instance. And um, yeah, and I feel the reception, like people have been super generous. I mean, here, being here, for example, talking about this right now, and I feel that writers, Latin American writers, and both, or Latino writers in the US and Latin America and elsewhere, have really kind of san encariñado, you know, a little bit with the project, have encariñado. Uh, yeah, so that was a little bit how it worked out. Is there something happening, like some really major change in the way in which uh, Latin American writers are being published, perceived uh, by themselves, by others at this point in the U.S.? I don't know, I'm thinking that for a long time there was a lot of talk about this Latin, new Latino uh, writing, and, uh, and now I see a lot of Latin American writers writing in Spanish in the United States. And I'm wondering if this is a new, new, new Latino <laughs> writing, or, or how do you perceive that? Is that a real transformation, a real change, or? Yeah, I mean, it was a, I think the way I see it is that there, there has always been great writing and write, writers producing really interesting texts. And now, in part because of new media, but in part also by uh, a lot of independent publishing projects uh, in Latin America as well. I mean, the Cartoneras, for example, uh, but other kinds as well, um, are just allowing a lot of these texts to get, you know, get the, the diffusion they, they deserve. I feel and um, translators, I feel, are starting to get more of a. I, I don't know. I mean, I always feel they should get more respect and more funds and more everything, you know. But now. Um, their work is starting to get very valued by by small and bigger publishing houses as well. And of course, of course, there's like some of these more circumstantial circumstantial phenomenons, like even the fact that Roberto Bolaño gave like this second air to whatever it, Latin American literature is considered to be, uh, also pushes that in that direction. I feel so a lot of like little, little circumstances. In your writing, do you ever have in like one story, do you switch between English and Spanish? And if you do, what is what is your purpose in doing that? Like what kind of effect are you trying to have on the reader? Uh, yeah, I, I just write in Spanish. So so this story was translated like after the fact. And and I had a lot of trouble, for example, deciding whether I was going to go with Uncle Moy or Theo Moy. You know, so I these are big questions that I haven't been able to answer just quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> But it's all. Who translated? Um, Kate Newman actually, and yeah, she and myself. We kind of went back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Thank you. Well, thank thanks. you so much. Yeah, thank you so much.